Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. Good to see all of you. If you're new here, my name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, I have the privilege of preaching through this unbelievably challenging passage today. So um, my hope every week, the hope of our staff, our elders, our members really, is that each week that we would walk out of here knowing that God was glorified, that Jesus was honored, that the Holy Spirit was welcomed and moved among us, and that the church is challenged, equipped, convicted, and pushed back out into the world as faithful, obedient disciples of Jesus. So with that being said, let's begin. First slide. Brennan Manning, in The Furious Longing of God, says this. How is it then that we've come to imagine that Christianity consists primarily in what we do for God? How has this come to be the good news of Jesus? Is the kingdom that he proclaimed to be nothing more than a community of men and women who go to church on Sunday, take an annual spiritual retreat, read their Bibles every now and then, vigorously oppose abortion, don't watch X-rated movies, never use vulgar language, smile a lot, hold doors open for people, root for the favorite team, and get along with everybody? Is that why Jesus went through the bleak and bloody horror of Calvary? Is that why he emerged in shattering glory from the tomb? Is that why he poured out his Holy Spirit on the church? To make nicer men and women with better morals? The gospel is absurd and the life of Jesus is meaningless unless we believe that he lived and died and rose again with but one purpose in mind, to make brand new creations. Not make people with better morals, but to create a community of prophets and professional lovers, men and women who would surrender to the mystery of the fire of the spirit that burns within, who would live in ever greater fidelity to the omnipresent word of God who would enter into the center of it all, to the very center and the mystery of Christ, into the center of the flame that consumes and purifies, sets everything aglow with peace, joy, boldness, and extravagant, furious love. You see, when Jesus Christ moves into your life, he comes with an absolutely loaded agenda to change quite literally everything. And so if you're not interested in change, and we are all kind of averse to change in many ways, following Jesus is going to be very disruptive and very hard for all kinds of reasons. So over the last several weeks in the early home, we've gotten really dialed on how we do things in the evenings. On Sunday night, we watch The Simpsons and repent later. Uh, <laughs> Monday nights, we're playing board games, and Tuesday nights, we're listening to C.S. Lewis. We're listening through the old BBC recordings from back in the 50s of the uh, walking through the, the, the Chronicles of Narnia series that was on, on the radio. And so I've been digging up a lot of old C.S. Lewis stuff. I've studied him for a long time. And one thing that leapt off a page this week in mere Christianity to me is this. Imagine yourself a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on, and you knew the jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. 
But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abdominally and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building a quite different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to live it in himself. That is the experience of the Christian life. That when Jesus moves in, he does begin to address a few things. We're like, oh, well, I kind of knew he was going to talk to me about that. That was kind of obvious. But then he starts coming in closer and working more thorough than we might have ever envisioned a life with God to actually look like. And so as Jesus moves in, he moves in with unmatched authority because he is the king of kings, and he does come in with an agenda for our lives. And so as we begin, I want to say that I am very mindful of the seriousness of the text, and I'm also very present to you in this room. I'm aware that we have addictions present in this room. I'm aware that people have been married and divorced and remarried in this room. And so the aim of today, like every single day since Jesus was resurrected from the grave, is not to pump the church full of fear, guilt, shame, dread, regret, and remorse, okay? So I'm just going to be present to those realities. I'm going to stay faithful to God and his word because you deserve it. And most of all, he deserves it. And at the same time, I want to communicate as gently and as compassionately, knowing that I am absolutely the one in perhaps the most need of grace today. Okay, let's go. Okay, there we go. All right, we got one. Let's do it. <laughs> Beginning with the context of Mark chapter 9. <clears throat> the context is this. Jesus, is predi he predicts his death three times in the gospel of Mark. He just gave his death and resurrection prediction for the second time. And each time as Jesus predicts his death and resurrection and starts telling the disciples what's going to happen in a couple of weeks on Good Friday, he starts to get clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer about what it is to be a disciple. That is, as the hours go down and there's only so much time left, he just says things as clearly and as succinctly as he possibly can as he highlights the seriousness of sin and covenant and relationships and calls to holiness, faith, and repentance. And as he does, he uses hyperbole. Hyperbole is an exaggerated statement that you're not supposed to take literally but he uses hyperbole to communicate a point. This is why we can remember passages like, cut your hand off. <laughs> You'll remember that. It's the reason why, same reason why hyperbole is why we gravitate toward, say, the, the arts or music or something like that. There's a way in which you get into music that you don't get into reading legal code. It's the reason why most of us can remember Psalm 23 but can't remember a textual nuance that goes on in Leviticus about a purity law somewhere. So Jesus uses hyperbole in order to communicate a massive point surrounding discipleship. And here's what I've noticed. Um, having lived in several places around our country, 
and even abroad, is that passages like this one in particular uh, gets more attention in some regions than others. That is in very strict, fundamentalistic, super hyper, hyper conservative places versus like chop your hand off, gouge your eye out, hardcore discipleship comments like this. They get drummed up to a degree that produces a kind of self-righteousness and policing of one another in a way that isn't helpful and it doesn't produce joy-filled followers of Jesus. That's very true. I was like, are you talking about my hometown? Probably. Um, But then there's other places like Seattle, Washington, where we are now, for the two of you that were born in Seattle. Um, Yeah, yeah, there we go. There's the two. (laughs) Oh, three. All right. Um, But there's places like in our context here where passages like cut your hand off, gouge your eye out, they get pushed way out as being extreme. That's primal. That's some kind of primitive. That's too far especially in a progressive society like ours. So these hyperboles that Jesus uses, he's trying to grab the attention of his hearers. And so he speaks in some very powerful and often offensive ways as he seeks to get our attention about God and our souls, sin and salvation and discipleship. And here's why. Because Jesus has come to save and not merely move into our little city and affirm every little thing about us. He loves us as we are, but he refuses to leave us where he finds us. So for you and I, we have to square with the reality that a gospel that cannot offend us cannot save us. A gospel that cannot offend you cannot save you. Otherwise, go look in the mirror all day and just tell yourself how good you are. But a gospel that cannot offend cannot save. And so Jesus says offensive things, but not as a grump and a grouch there to leave you on your own in shame, but to bring you in. All right. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. At the end of, in in verse 41 in in Mark chapter 9, Jesus talks about giving out water to little ones in his name. And if you do this, you'll never lose your reward. Now it's juxtaposed here. If you cause a little one to stumble, the word scandal, meaning literally to sin or rebel, to walk away from God, whoever causes, whoever is the cause, pushing people away to doubt Jesus, to doubt the faithfulness of God, to doubt the character of God, to deny the word of God, whoever's causing this stuff, Jesus says it's better to have a millstone, a, a, something, literally the word is donkey there, like for a beast of burden to grind out flour. He says, it's better that that would be tied around your neck and thrown into the bottom of the sea than to answer to God for that kind of evil. Some of us in this room have been the victims of a kind of spiritual abuse, to say the least. And it's caused us to ask questions that we should have never had to ask. Is God good? Does God love me? Does God care about me on my worst day? Does, God, does all God care about is my like, perfect behavior and my tithe? Nonsense. 
that we have to ask these questions. And I love passages like this because Jesus is taking victims very seriously. And he takes people seriously who would stand in a place of leadership or authority. He takes it extremely seriously. James, Jesus' younger half-brother, says, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you'll be judged with a greater judgment. That's not just being judged by other people. It's being strictly judged by God. And so he tells people, I need you to take this overwhelmingly serious. For the first several years of our church plan, up to the current day, I mean, our church has functioned honestly as a hospital for so many who have been wounded in the church community. And I'm thankful for that. It's also why I'm thankful for a vision like faithful presence to God and self and each other. A vision that's not marked by, well, things that you can just mark a faithful church by in a generic sense. But to be faithfully present keeps all of us grounded. thrown into the bottom of the sea. Yeah, I'll stop. I won't say anything. <laughs> you know, you have these thoughts that come up and you go, you know, I hadn't prayed about that one. I'm not going to say that, but boy, I'd like to. Anyway, <laughs> Mark now transitions and begins to string together several of Jesus' sayings on personal sacrifice and discipleship. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus repeatedly refers <clears throat> to hell, unquenchable fire. The word is Gehenna. And he's drawing from a very real place on the south side of Jerusalem. The Valley of Hinnom is a place where um, during the days of Josiah the king and Jeremiah the prophet, uh, pagans would go and offer their infants in human sacrifice to the god Molech. And because God opposes the destruction of human life from womb to tomb, because every human being is made in the image and likeness of God, every human, every human is made in the image and likeness of God, the prophets confront their great evil and call the people to repent. And where that used to be, this Valley of Hinnom, where the children were sacrificed after King Josiah and Jeremiah the prophet set some things straight, they turned that valley into a garbage dump. And so there was always a smoldering fire as they burning trash. And the worm does not die and fire is not going out. This is the image that's described here. Jesus likens judgment, condemnation to this place. If 
you want to go into is it literal, I personally, personally think this is a metaphor, but I would hate to see if this is a metaphor for something perhaps more severe. So Jesus says, I want you to take your life seriously. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your foot causes you to sin, chop it off. It is better to show up in the kingdom of God maimed than go into hell whole. Your hand is what you do. Your eye is what you behold. Your feet are where you go. Jesus is teaching his disciples very plainly. There is no such thing as a Uh, some kind of dualism going on in your spiritual life. Your life is integrated. What you do with your eyes, your feet, your hands, what you do physically is a demonstration of where you are spiritually. And so Jesus is saying, please don't play games going, oh, I'm good with God, but I just do with my eyes and my hands and my feet whatever I want, whenever I want. Jesus is going, no, 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 no. Don't play games with your soul. I'm not. I'm headed toward Calvary on behalf of your soul. So I need you to take it so seriously what you do with your eyes and your hands and your feet. And honestly, if you just ask, ask me. (laughs) I'll speak from my own experience. Or you could ask any of your friends that you've known who've walked with God for any amount of time. This is not bad news. This is the best news that you will thank God for should you run from temptation. Jesus is trying to save us here. Just ask your friend that's in the gutter right now, and he'll tell you, yep. Yep. I wish I would have obeyed this here because the flesh takes us to places that we just didn't, we we don't really think will end up there. Everybody else does, but not us. And so Jesus is fighting not only for your eternal life, but your present life at great expense to yourself because the call of the gospel is not self-actualization. It is self-denial. It is looking Jesus in the face and saying, you are my Lord, I am not my Lord, and even if I feel a certain way and want to indulge a certain thing, you are my king, and because you are my king, whatever you say goes, whatever you say, Jesus, that's what goes from my attitude, from my thoughts, from my contemplation to what I do with my eyes and my hands and my feet. You are my king, full stop. I will be a living sacrifice for you. I'll repent where I need to repent, but I want to walk with you. This is at the essence of what it is to be a, a disciple. Again, Jesus is headed toward Calvary, so he's not about to play with his words now. So the Christian life is an integrated life. So just ask yourself, you're already thinking of it, I know already. What do I need to remove? Certainly don't, seriously don't maim yourself. Uh, Don't. Again, hyperbole. But what do you need to remove? Technology? Like, oh gosh, that's all of us. Yeah. Technology, sports, entertainment, food, drink. If I were to ask you 30 seconds, what do you need to look at in your life and go, all right, I need to do some inventory and just go, I agree, Jesus, I'm going that way. What does that actually look like? And it may look different for everybody in this room, different things. 
But what's the place where Jesus keeps putting his finger on in your own life? Because delayed obedience is disobedience. So, you got the thing, whatever that is? Yeah, for sure. Okay. For everyone will be salted with fire. Now, this saying is unique to Mark. Nowhere else does it show up in the gospel. Everyone will be salted with fire. Catholic theologians like to use this verse to, like, talk about um, purgatory. (laughs) Everyone will be salted with fire. You can work it off somewhere else. That's not what Jesus is saying, as clever as that is. Um, To be salt, salt is a preservative. Fire is a purifier. Everyone will be salted with fire. Jesus is saying to his disciples, each disciple of mine is going to go through unbelievably challenging things in their lives. And as they do, those are not without purpose, but they are with design. To be salted with fire means I'm going to be purified in my walk with Jesus And none of us are exempt. None of us, every one of us are gonna go through some things. But it is not without purpose or design. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? How will you make it salty again? How does salt lose its saltiness? Where they would go and they would get salt at this time, sometimes it would get mixed with a... um, a mineral called gypsum, which would, in fact, remove the flavor and preserving nature of sodium. That it was possible to go and gather all this salt and they'd come back and go, oh my gosh, it's been mingled with something else and it's become useless. But the point of the salt is a preserving agent. It was used because there was no refrigeration. So again, Jesus is trying to get us to take some inventory. Have you lost your saltiness? Are you, or how is your saltiness? Are you fighting the world's decay? Are you seeking to preserve that which God longs to preserve? Or are you on cruise control, kind of indifferent to a lot of things? And Jesus says, and be at peace with one another. His command to be at peace and not withhold or delay or postpone reconciliation is how he intends his church to live. Be at peace with one another. This isn't optional. And this is one of those sins that we kind of like give a pass on in church world. Like we know we got major sins. But then, like, you don't have to, like, be at peace with everybody. I mean, some people, blah, blah, blah. And Jesus is clearly saying to, one, to us here, be at peace with one another. Paul says, strive to live at peace with one another by all means. Jesus, in the high priestly prayer in John 17, he prayed, Father, make them one even as you and I are one. You're one of the greatest apologetics for the gospel that the world is desperately needing to see right now from the church is how Christians can forgive one another and work toward reconciliation. Like No one's asking me about the teleological argument for the existence of God, ever, 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 ever. And I've read so many books on it. But let me tell you, no one asks about that stuff. You know what people do ask about? How come they cannot figure it out? How come they can't get along? How come they cancel each other just like everybody else in the world? 
Be at peace with one another. If we want unbelievers to come to follow Jesus, then we have to practice the basics of the gospel, the ministry of reconciliation, in which we reconcile to God and reconcile to one another. That's what Jesus is calling for. (sighs) Okay, you ready for the hard part? Here you go. And he left there and went to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. So these Pharisees, literally the word means religious separatists, who are consistently trying to test Jesus. They're not asking because they're, they're stumped on the law. They consistently want to corner Jesus and have himself paint himself into the corner, and they want to use Moses to do it, which is just the worst move. This is Jesus, but they, they aren't impressed with him yet. But they will be. And they try to trap Jesus by twisting scriptures around so that they can accuse him. And they do this several times. And so Jesus says, yes, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to to send her away. Now, the law does not, did not permit a woman to divorce her husband. But a husband could divorce his wife. According to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, If a husband finds something indecent, that's the word, in his wife, he was allowed to divorce his wife. Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote you this commandment. Can we divorce our wives, Jesus? Yes, you can. Because you're so hard-hearted and so unforgiving and so unaccepting, and so unbelievably overbearing on a woman. Because you will not embrace your wife for who she is, even on the days that she comes up short, Moses gave you permission. Oh, and let's not forget, the law wasn't about getting permission to hit people back. It was about limiting retribution. Remember the verse, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? The whole point of the law was to limit retribution so that someone doesn't bring a knife to a fist fight. The law was about limiting retribution, which is important. And so then, to begin to deal with the context, though, is very important. The way rabbis talked about what counts as legitimate grounds of divorce was evil, trivial, and patriarchal nonsense. I thought about summarizing the passage, but I might just read it to you just so that you can get a flavor of how how the rabbis of the day were talking about what constitutes as legal grounds for filing divorce against a man filing for divorce against his wife. Let's pull this up. This is... um, that's C.S. Lewis. Next one. Um, we'll get there. Uh, a, a, a professor of mine, his name's Chuck Quarles, 
uh, from seminary said this in his commentary on Matthew's gospel, and it's absolutely fantastic research and writing. The Mishnah stated that a man could divorce his wife if she were barren, if she became deaf, mute, or if she had epilepsy, tetanus, warts, or leprosy. Mishnah Kabot insisted that a man could divorce his wife if she failed to perform certain services in the home. Rabbinic law also stated that certain physical defects in the wife were, uh, were so offensive that they were legitimate grounds for divorce. The general principle was that any physical defect or blemish that was serious enough to disqualify a man from the priesthood was sufficiently repulsive to serve as a grounds for divorce. Consequently, a man could divorce his wife if she had a head that was wedge-shaped. I know, I know. Turnip-shaped, <laughs> hammer-shaped, or, or otherwise malformed, such as sunk in or flat at the back. These are actual laws. I know. He could divorce his wife if she had poor posture, or if she had thinning hair. He could divorce her if she had no eyebrows, only one eyebrow, or bushy eyebrows. He could divorce her if she had a pug nose. The condition of her eyes was particularly important. If she had eyes too high or too low, if she were cross-eyed, had no eyelashes, had eyes of two different colors, watery eyes, or eyes as big as a calf or small like a goose, any of these justify divorce. The man could divorce his wife if her nose were too big or too little, if her ears were too little or too floppy. If she had an overbite or an underbite, missing teeth, poor figure, swollen belly, a protruding navel, oversized or damaged sexual organs, a dark complexion, bony ankles or knees, swollen feet, if she were bow-legged, suffered from a swelling of the big toe, if her heel had protrusions, and if her sole of her foot was as wide as that as a goose, a lot of geese, uh, or if she were ambidextrous. A man could divorce his wife if she ate something he had forbidden her to eat, if she had visited the home of her parents, yikes, or against her, if, uh, her husband's wishes, the in-laws moved to the same city to be near their daughter, uh, spoke to any man other than her husband if she burned his supper or if he simply found someone that he thought was prettier. That's the world in which Jesus was living. That's the world. As silly as it sounds to read some of these laws, if she looks like this, if she looks like that, if she's... What a horrible condition to live in. What a horrible way to see the world. What a horrible way to see women. God have mercy, and he does. And so Jesus then begins to set the record straight, looking guys like this that look at their wives like that, Jesus has a few things to say. And Jesus' masterful handling of the Bible, he doesn't dismiss Moses. He simply says, you guys are starting on page 205, Deuteronomy chapter 24, at the worst part. Why don't we go all the way back to page one? He always drives people back to the book. Verse six, but beginning from creation, God, command, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
They're no longer two, but one flesh. There's so much to be unpacked there. And later this year in the fall, we're going to take about eight weeks and do um, some cultural apologetics and talk about transgenderism, thinking politically, some of the darker parts of church history, deconstruction, a whole lot of other things. We'll, we'll have more time to get into a, a whole lot of that. Um, but I do want to highlight how Jesus handles this right here. He says, let's start where the Bible starts. Why are you guys beginning with a vision post-sin, post-fall, post-rebellion? Why do you want to start after the serpent deceived Eve and Adam and all the Why start there? Why can't you have a, aren't you guys, or don't you guys know God? Shouldn't you be living out of page one? Your trajectory matters big time, especially in our own like theological thinking. Where you start your theology is critical. Our theology does not begin with I'm a terrible sinner. I thought that most of my life. If someone were to say, Alex, tell me the gospel, I'd be like, well, I'm a terrible sinner. That's a terrible, that is not, that's not the starting block. I am a terrible sinner. That is not the beginning of the gospel. It's certainly not the beginning of the Bible. It begins with God. In the beginning, God. Not you, not me, not your sin, not the serpent. In the beginning, God. The triune God made everything out of desire, not necessity. Everything exists out of his own will. In the beginning, God. Let's start there with the gospel. That's what Jesus is trying to get us to see here. And so... These people were asking, basically, how can I get out of this commitment of being married and still be considered right before God? Uh, wrong question. The question should be something to the effect of, how could God take me and make me right with him? And how can I live in a way that rightly reflects his character? Not the bare minimum. Verse nine, what therefore God has put together, let not man separate. So I went round for round. <laughs> I've gone round for round on this passage for years as a pastor. And again, this week, broke out all the commentaries and looking through all the lexicons and really trying to go, Lord, what are you saying here again? And I just want to show you a quote from uh, Ben Witherington. He's, I, I think he's in my top three favorite uh, New Testament theologians. This is how he explains this passage, and I think it's, it's probably the most accurate. I say probably most because, gosh, I know I'm like missing stuff in this sermon. So just give me a little grace, will you? All right. It needs to be observed that Jesus is only talking about believing persons whom God has joined together. Remember, it says, whom God has joined together. He says nothing about pagan marriages, nor does he suggest that God joins all marriages together. For he objected to relationships such as that of Herod Antipas and Herodias. The qualifiers Jesus makes in his remarks need to be taken seriously. Jesus' argument then seems to be as follows. 
God in creation made two distinct but complementary human genders. God then also brought the two complementary genders together in marriage. No third party is allowed into this relationship. Anyone who seeks to divide those who share such a marriage and one flesh union attacks not only the marriage and the two united in it, but God who brought them together as well. The creator and creation order both undergird marriage. Painter, another theologian, is right that the upshot of the teaching here is that while Jesus recognizes the reality of divorce, he does not think this legitimizes remarriage if the original couple were joined together by God in the first place. Okay? So very practically, like when I'm doing premarital counseling at our church with couples who may have had a previous marriage, this is a place where we spend time on asking a lot of serious questions about were you Christians in your previous marriage? Was God a part of that? Do, do you look at that as a time of life that God joined you together? Oftentimes it's, well, I was a Christian and she wasn't or she was and I wasn't or no, we weren't Christians. There's all those kinds of things we have to kind of get into. And so things of this nature we want to be very careful about because, again, we're talking about covenants and souls and people. And in the house, verse 10, and this is a key part. If you mark your Bible or if you're in an app or whatever, in the house is a key part of interpreting this passage. In the house is a key that unlocks a door. Um, Rona Hooker, another New Testament theologian, she's 91 uh, in Oxford, she, she says this about this passage. The picture of private coaching is perhaps Mark's way of spelling out what he believed to be the implications of Jesus's words for the Christian community. So in the house, he's now alone with the disciples and they begin to go into further teaching, which is a signal to all the readers going, oh, this is not for everybody out there. He's talking strictly to disciples. The disciples asked him about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. This is a statement that would have shocked his disciples. Because in Jesus' overwhelmingly clear approach, his revolutionary approach to relationships, which involved both practicing unlimited forgiveness, 70 times seven, as well as elevating women to their proper co-equal status that they have with men as image bearers of God, so clearly depicted in the Garden of Eden. This would have shocked them, the saying about committing adultery against her. Let me show you another theologian. James Brooks writes this. The word her commits adultery against her. The word her refers to the first wife, the one who was divorced. The teaching of Jesus was quite contrary to that of Judaism. According to Jewish law, a wife could commit adultery against her husband by having relations with another man. And a man, whether married or not, could commit adultery against another man by having relations with that man's wife. 
But a husband could not commit adultery against his own wife by being unfaithful to her. By insisting that a husband could commit adultery against his own wife, Jesus greatly elevated the status of wives and women in general. You see, this is the actual patriarchal context in which Jesus lived. And it would have shocked the disciples going, oh, men can be held to the same standard, same accountability. And he's going, yes, page one of the Bible says you're both made as equal image bearers of God. He's not playing favorites here. You are. You are. And then he adds this verse at the very end, verse 12. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And you go, well, hold on. The context is women can't divorce their wives. Most theologians point out that Mark adds this text as a summary saying of Jesus because he's writing to the church in Rome in which women could easily file for divorce outside of Israel. Jesus knew his gospel was going to go outside of Palestine and travel throughout the Roman Empire. And so Mark adds this caveat so that the early church in Rome would go, oh, okay, so this is how it works globally. If a woman does this, same thing. So now the very big question. Does God continuously look at a remarried person strictly as an adulterer for the rest of his or their lives? Is that person or that couple to walk about in shame? No. Certainly, and having spent time with people who have been married and remarried in very close, intimate settings, certainly, the second marriage is less than what God would have intended. And certainly what any couple who has been married and divorced and remarried intended. No one intends to end up like that in a, in a place of divorce. That hardly needs to be said. But walking about in shame has literally nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus has come to set us free. And so we have to ask these questions that are so important. Can God make the dead live? Yes, ask the little girl raised in Nain, Lazarus, or even Jesus Christ himself. God can make the dead live. Can God take something soiled and make it white as snow? Yes. Ask the prodigal son who woke up in a pigsty only to find himself a few hours later dressed in a king's robe with a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet at a feast that he didn't deserve to be at. Can God take a failure and turn him around? Yeah, ask Peter who doubted and denied and resisted Jesus someone who fails over and over again. Ask Peter what Jesus does with screw-ups. He doesn't throw them out. I can tell you personally, what does God do with an anxiety-ridden boy with attention deficit disorder from a country town in Georgia? Can God take a kid that's lost and on his way to jail 
and turn someone's life around? I can tell you he can. God can reach into our lives and still bring healing and joy and peace and love. Isaiah prophesied of Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break, and the smoldering wick of your life he will not snuff out. If you find yourself bruised or smoldering, Jesus is not adding any more insult and isn't looking to snuff you out. How does God look at his children? As his children. Children he loves, children he forgives, children he wants, children he saves, children he delights in, in spite of the decisions they've made that have broken their own hearts at various moments and certainly his commandments. Children savored and cherished by the king. Now, can I just take one more minute and preach the good news to you? You feel like you've been under Moses enough today? <laughs> Here's the good news of the gospel, and if we don't follow it all the way through to the gospel, you might walk out of here thinking, gosh, Jesus is just a little harder than Moses. No, Jesus, Jesus does what Moses could never do. On Good Friday, Jesus had the millstone tied around his neck, and he was plunged to the bottom of the sea. On Good Friday, Jesus had his eyes blackened because we couldn't use ours the right way. On Good Friday, Jesus had his hands nailed to a cross because we couldn't seem to use our hands the right way. On Good Friday, Jesus had his feet pierced to the wood because we kept going places that we weren't supposed to be. On Good Friday, Jesus forever pardoned every one of us who are guilty of lust and adultery and unfaithfulness. Jesus died in our place for our sins so that we would become the righteousness of God. And because Jesus himself resurrected from the dead, you are now justified before the throne of God, never to walk around full of fear or guilt or shame or disgrace or regret, but rather you walk around as someone who has been forgiven by the King of Kings and nothing, no power in hell or scheme of man can ever pluck you out of his hand. That's the truth of the gospel. He has sent the spirit of God to live within you, to remind you that, yeah, I know, I know that's part of your past. I know this is part of your present struggle, but you still belong to me. Hang in there. As long as there's still breath in your lungs, there's hope for you. There is hope for you. For those of you that are married and you're already at your wits end going, I don't know if we're going to make it another year. You are going to make it. You will make it. And for those that are sitting here going, gosh, I've never been married. I, 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 life is hard and complicated. I want what I see in Genesis 1. I want you to know that God is present to you. And that marriage is not something to be idolized. And it's not the ideal for every human to walk the earth including Jesus and St. Paul himself. So I say these things as tenderly as I know how, as faithfully as to God's word as I know how, but your king has made you righteous. As to him we pray. So let's do that now. 
Jesus, I thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for telling us things that we need to hear. Thank you for coming to build not just a little cottage, but a palace for in which you to dwell. Work within us. Help us to walk away from things we need to walk away from. Let us seek you in holiness and in purity because you deserve it. You are a good shepherd who laid down your life for us, your sheep. And so help us, God, be faithful to you to stay, step, stay in step with you, Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in the good name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen.